Well, today's the final episode, the last installment of the prodigal son. Remember now, it's a parable. Jesus taught in a lot of parables, and parables aren't necessarily historically accurate, but Jesus used a story to make a point. And the whole idea of parables is not everybody understood them, and so the reason we're spending some time is to make sure that we understand them. Parable always has a, a story that's obvious, but then there's a deeper spiritual truth. And the challenge for us, and not always the fun part for us, is to not just understand that deeper spiritual truth, but to be able to say, what is it you're saying to me, Jesus? Where am I in this? Who am I? Uh, how does my attitude or acting or the way that I think come through in this parable? And so today, we're, we're going to do that. I'm going to give you a chance to, to take another look in the mirror. And to take a look and see who's really looking back at you. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in uh, the beginning of the parable. We're going to read all the way through it in case anybody's missed it. We're going to start in verse 11 of chapter 15 of Luke. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but here I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never obeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and is found. We've got the one that we know as the prodigal son. We've got the father, and now we're introduced to the older brother. Your challenge today is to take this parable as though 
You were there the day that Jesus taught it and said, Who am I in the middle of this thing? Verse 20, And He arose. This is the the Son who's left home. He arose and He came to His Father. This is the critical moment for the Son. This is the critical moment. This is the point that we so often get to and we stop. We get here and we know that we need to be here, but our fear and our pride and our ego all prevent us from doing this simple but critical thing. This is the turning point. This is where the whole parable takes a 180. The son arose. He got up and he went back to his dad. He did something. He stood up and he decided to do something different. He went home not to cry to daddy and complain about how bad things were. He went home to seek reconciliation and ask for forgiveness. He wasn't going home to ask for special treatment. He went to apologize. See, he chose to turn from his sinful life and go the opposite direction. And what we're reading about is he's actually beginning a journey of repentance that will take him all the way back to the Father that he sinned so grievously against. But Jesus says while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. His dad was watching and waiting. His dad was paying attention to whatever road it was led to his house because he was waiting for the day that his son would come home. The father's first reaction, he wasn't angry. He didn't go to yell and scream. The father's first reaction, Jesus said, was compassion. He didn't know what his son's story was. He didn't know what had happened. He just saw his boy. In fact, he couldn't wait for the son to get to him. So Jesus says in the parable, he ran out to meet him. He hugged him. He kissed him. He was so happy. His emotions took over. What we would have expected is at that moment, the son would have dropped to the ground, kissed his father's feet, and asked for forgiveness. He would have been humble and acted in a, in a sign of contrition, but his father never gives him that chance. The father runs to his son. He welcomes with open arms before the son even gets back to the house because the father was ready and waiting to forgive. Now at this point, we've got to take a look and realize the Father in this story is God. And as people who choose to become disciples of Jesus, we want to be like the Father, but we're not the Father in the story. We're one of the two sons. On our best days, we can maybe look and have a resemblance to the Father the way that on our best days we can resemble Jesus. But the Father's waiting, and when we're truly repentant, when we truly know the weight of our sin and we bring it to God in confession and repentance, God is waiting for us to come home. Waiting to forgive us, waiting to begin, for us to begin, our relationship with Him all over again. Verse 21, And the Son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your Son. He starts out great. He's been rehearsing this part. We read last week. I just read it to you now. He was practicing what he was going to say. He was probably worried his dad was going to be angry and maybe wouldn't let him get much in. And so he's practicing what he really wants to say to his Father. 
Except he gets to the part where he's talking about treat me as one of your hired servants and it never happens. He never gets that part out. The son does confess. He, he does show up in repentance. He acknowledges his wrongdoing. Furthermore, his dad is already well aware of what he's done. His father knows that he took the inheritance and he ran and he gave up the privilege of being a son in good standing. But what seems to happen is that the father interrupts him. It's like the father doesn't let him get his whole confession and apology out. It's like the father stops him. And instead of hearing the part where the son says, treat me as one of your hired servants, the father looks to one of his servants. And he says, bring quickly the best robe and put him on him. Put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. <coughs> the dad's so overwhelmed that it's like he pulls out all the stops. It's almost like he's acting without thinking. But I wonder if he hadn't planned for this day for a very long time. I wonder if he hadn't been expecting, hoping, praying for the day that his son would come home and, and in his mind, if he ever did, the father says, this is what I'm going to do to welcome him. And it's so completely not what we would have expected. He tells the servant to go get his very finest robe and puts it on his son. The son who has just been living in a pig field. And the father says, get my finest robe and put it on him. And you know what he does for his son is what God does for us. Is the father clothes him in his righteousness. And without having to say anything else, everything about the son says that he is the son of his father once again. And God does that for Jesus in us, for us in Jesus when we come home to him and repent and confess our sins. The Bible says that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. He puts a ring on his hand and it wouldn't have been a ring that was just laying around. It would have been the ring that identified the Father. It would have been a ring that when he went out in public, it would have declared his sonship and his identity. And once again, in that, that immediate moment, he represents his Father in the world. His Father gives him position and authority. And then he does the part that's so easy to overlook. It says he puts shoes on his feet. This is probably a fairly wealthy family that doesn't seem like a big deal. But that son who was lost so much literally came home without so much as shoes on his feet. And the father put shoes on his feet to tell the whole world, this isn't a servant who's wearing sandals. This is my son who's wearing shoes. He doesn't dress him as a rebellious and disobedient child as this boy deserves. He dresses them as royalty. He treats them as though he were a prince. Choose to tell the world that he's a son, not a servant. And it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder what God is doing right now. Is God waiting for you to just drop the argument, drop the rebellion, let go of the sin, turn around and come home? See, God is the Father in this parable, and we are the sons and daughters. And if this is what the Father does for His Son, imagine what God is waiting to do for you. But maybe you're still living in excuses. 
Maybe you're still living with justifications. Maybe you're just being rebellious. Maybe you're saying, I don't want to admit it to God because then it's real. As though God doesn't already know what you're doing. See, we don't like to talk about sin in our world, so we talk about mistakes and bad decisions. God isn't offended by a mistake. God is offended by our sin. But maybe what you're doing is saying, I'm not going to bring it to God because I don't really want to deal with it. But God is waiting for you to come home. And then the Father does something else that's absolutely ridiculous. He sends for the fattened calf, the one that's been set apart for the biggest celebrations. In this culture, this was a big deal. If you had the money, you had this one animal that you set aside for only the biggest days of celebration. And it was the fattened calf. When there was a reason to really throw a party, that's what they pulled out. Something truly, truly special. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us who was there to celebrate. But there was going to be a lot of food. Well, we know that there was a father and two sons. There would have been some servants that would have been probably working for them. But then, more than likely, they lived as a part of a village. They lived as a part of a community. More than likely, all of those folks got word And they came for the celebration as well. And those would have been the villagers. They would have been the neighbors. They would have been talking amongst themselves. Jesus doesn't say how long the sun was gone, but you know those folks were still talking about Him, weren't they? Well, you know what happened to Him. He dared take all of His inheritance from His dad, and He just ran away. Somebody said He ended up in some country, four countries over. But you know what? One day He's going to come home. He's going to come back to his dad broken and groveling. He's going to have wasted it all and he's going to expect his dad to welcome him back like nothing ever happened because that's what we do, isn't it? That's what we do. So no doubt part of the reason for this lavish display on the Father's part is to make a bold statement to everybody and immediately stop the chatter and the gossip. And the Father, without saying a word, said, This is my son and I am glad he's home. Not much the community can say after that, is there? But you know what? We still like to gossip. We still like to talk about people. We still like to kick them a little when they're down. And so in verse 25, we've got the older son. His older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. And so the father came out and entreated him, invited him, asked him if he'd come in to be a part of the party. Because the older brother didn't want to. (coughs) See, the older son had been doing that day what he'd probably done every day since his younger brother left with the money. He'd been out in the field working. He'd been dutifully doing his job. But instead of joining in the celebration and welcoming his brother, he refuses to go into the party. And instead, he keeps himself outside, separated from the celebration. He doesn't even go in to greet his brother. So his loving father comes out and gets him and encourages, probably begs him to come in to the biggest celebration the dad has ever had a reason to throw. Verse 29, the brother answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
The older brother is bitter about the food. He's angry. He never got so much as a goat. The older brother is every bit as much of a sinner as his younger brother is. Most of the messages on this don't ever cover this, but you know what? That older brother is a Pharisee in the truest sense. That older brother is a sinner that can't be overlooked and ignored. Because you know what he's doing? He's clinging to religion. He's clinging to his duty and his good works and he misses the point and the entire spirit of the reason for the celebration. And Jesus uses that older brother to represent the rigidity, the absence of joy, completely missing the point of forgiveness that is so often found in people that are more concerned about religion than they are about loving God and loving other people. And this is where we've got to be careful because the Holy Spirit might be knocking on your head saying, are you listening? It got me this week. See, the older brother believes that dedication to work, to good deeds, means that he deserves special treatment of his own. And the spirit of religion does the same thing. It's, it's turned the older son into a slave of duty and obligation. The spirit of religion, the way that Jesus shows it here, is a joyless vacuum of self-righteous effort in the belief that that effort is going to earn us special favor. If I do my time at church, if I put in the hours, if I do what nobody else is willing to do, God better treat me differently. And if He doesn't, you're very quickly going to find yourself becoming the older brother. Because the older brother expected to be rewarded. See, he expected his salvation to come from his father as a result of his joyless and dutiful effort. And yet all his father wanted him to do was to share in the joy. My son that was lost is alive. And the older brother says to him, I want nothing to do with it. See, we like religion because we like to believe that we can earn our place. Religion is easy. All you've got to do is do one more good thing than somebody next to you, and God better recognize you for it. See, we can compare ourselves to others, and when we do that, we can hang on to our pride and ego. We don't have to owe God anything then. But see, salvation is a gift. It's a gift that demands something very different. The free gift of salvation that God offers us in Jesus only asks that we respond with a grateful heart and with a life of devotion to the giver of the gift. But for people who want religion, that's too much to ask. They just want to do one more good thing rather than to actually give their entire life to Jesus. Verse 30, When this son of yours came, the older brother speaking now, When this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Well, he only knows that because the servant told him. But how in the world does the older brother know what the younger brother did with his father's money? How does he know what happened to his inheritance? <clears throat> See, he didn't. If he had, Jesus would have told us. Jesus would have said something like, and one of the older brother's friends was traveling and sent word home that he'd seen the younger son. But Jesus doesn't tell us that. The older brother starts making up a story. It's what we do, isn't it? We make assumptions about people. 
See, the older brother wanted to say something that would anger his father about the younger brother. See, we make assumptions about people and we fill in the blanks. We do it the way we want the story to be and we always seem to do it with the worst possible interpretation. We take a little bit of truth. The little bit of truth is that the brother's home. And then we fill it in the blanks with things that make a good story and keep somebody down when they've been kicked or when they're down already. See, Jesus doesn't tell us what the younger brother spent the money on. He just said it was on reckless living. Debaucherous living. When someone is down on their luck or the world's kicked them, Rather than reaching out a loving hand to them, which is what we're called to do as believers in Jesus, you know, we kind of like to throw a little dust their way or kick them a little bit ourselves. They earned it. They should get what they deserve, right? So how about this one? You've ever, you ever been in town, walking around the mall, walking through town, at a gathering, maybe at a restaurant, maybe walking into church, and you see somebody there and you go, ugh. What are they doing here? Don't they know everybody knows who they are? And they're all dressed up like everything's fine. What do they think they're doing here? A person like that's got no business being in a church like this. You look at them and you say, you know what? I know who they really are. And if everybody else did, they wouldn't dare show their face. i got news for you. The fact is, just like you and me, I'll tell you who they are, whoever it is. There's a precious child of God and they're a sinner, just like we are. And you've heard me say this for nine years and you're going to hear me say it as long as I pastor this place. Here at this church, we will welcome prodigal men and women. We will love them like Jesus does. We will welcome sinners in what we will do rather than judging or condemning or telling them to go. We're going to proclaim to them the love of Jesus and then we're going to live it. That's where you say amen. See, the older son, he sees no reason to celebrate because he's selfish and he's angry. I've been working hard and he's running out and having fun. He doesn't care that his brother's alive and home. Do you realize he hasn't even gone in to say hello to him? What he cares about is his father would have the nerve to throw a party for him. He's jealous that the father killed and is going to serve the fattened calf. The older brother is angry that he never got a goat. Literally, that's what he says. You never even gave me a goat. In his mind, his younger brother is worth less than a goat for his friends. And what he does is he rejects his father just like religion in the heart of a person rejects God in favor of some measurable scorecard of actions that we can use to keep up and compare ourselves and the life and actions of others. The problem is that the older brother was dutiful. But his duty had no love to it. There was no heart to his deeds. The older brother only understood duty and obligation. No joy, no joy, no smile, only resentment. Verse 31, the father, and we get another glimpse into the father's heart here. He says to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. And I have to imagine now that the heart of the father is absolutely broken 
when he realizes that this son of his who's been with him all these years is not the least bit grateful for all the time that they've spent together. The son is bitter that the father never cared enough to give him a goat that he could have a party with his friends. Instead of being thankful for the privilege of enjoying life with his dad. And the father goes on and he says, All that I have is yours. Remember, the Father represents God, right? And then Jesus, and His death and resurrection, God offers everything that He has to us. He says, all that I have is yours. Essentially saying, everything that you've been working for since your younger brother left, we've increased our wealth. We have more than we did then. He took His share and He left. But everything that we have done since, all that I have, all of it, is yours. Said so it was fitting to celebrate and be glad in verse 32, for your brother was dead and is alive and he was lost and now he's found. See, here's the really sad thing about this parable. This dad has a great heart. He has two sons and he clearly loves them. And at the opening of the parable and here at the end of the parable, we see just how gentle and compassionate and loving this father's heart is we see that the two sons are a completely different story altogether. Neither of them has the heart of their father. Neither of them honors the heart of their father. The younger son disrespected and rebelled against his father in the most selfish way that he could imagine. The older son despises his brother and he's angry and jealous and selfish And it appears he really doesn't care about dad at all. Both of them end up sinning against the heart of their father. Both of them need to repent. Both need to ask the forgiveness of the father for their sins. It doesn't matter where you see yourself in this parable. Jesus could have gone on and said there was nine sons and we would have found ourselves in one of the nine. But you know what? There's a little bit of both of these sons that show up in both of our mind, in all of our minds. See, a heart of sinful rebellion, which is the younger son, is no worse than the heart of religious self-righteousness. Because both of them build a wall and separate us from the heart of our Father in heaven. This parable is widely known as the parable of the prodigal son when in fact both of the sons are prodigals. Both are celebrated, or excuse me, separated from their father. Both of them are overrun with selfishness and pride. But we see the younger son, as sinful as he is, making the decision to come home and repent and ask for forgiveness. But you know what? Jesus never tells us what happens to the older brother. He never even tells us if he joined the celebration. He never says whether or not the older brother came in to say welcome home to his younger brother. In fact, we're left with him alone outside of the celebration. The celebration of the forgiveness of the younger son who was lost to his father and has now come home. Now, the older brother, he's left alone outside the party with nothing but his religiousness and his pride and his anger and his sense of duty and his sense of obligation, no joy, no gratefulness, no gratitude 
for being a son who's inherited all that his father has because he never got a party with a goat. What a whiner. And yet we do the same thing. God, I've done this and this and this and You won't even give me that. I've spent so long doing these things and God, You won't even bless me with whatever it is. And what the Father is saying is, but I've already given you everything. You already have it. Now what are you going to do with it? But you know what? I think the better title to this one would actually be Parable of the Prodigal Father. Really. Because the Father is completely outside what is expected. He's completely outside of what is normal. He, he actually shows prodigal grace. And here's the thing. In all the weeks we've been talking about this parable, no one has ever asked me what prodigal means. You assumed you knew, didn't you? I'll let you have it from week one. We assume prodigal means wasteful. It means someone I don't want to be. It means he didn't have a good head on his shoulders. Prodigal does, in fact, mean wasteful or careless. Yes. But you know what else prodigal means? It means extravagant. And the Father has literally been waiting for an opportunity to show extravagant love, extravagant grace, and extravagant forgiveness to both of His boys. And you know what? We have a God who is extravagant in His love and His grace and His forgiveness to us. Extravagant in the abundance with which He receives and welcomes us home when we humble ourselves and give up our excuses and our justifications and we return to Him with a humble apology for the way that we have abused the freedom and the inheritance that He gives us in His Son Jesus. He welcomes us in love with open arms when we walk away from the false living of the self-indulgence and the lies of what has become nothing but empty religion and duty and obligation and we come home to Him in grateful love and obedience. 19th century, there was a theologian named Soren Kierkegaard. He says there's two kinds of religion, religion A and religion B. The first... Religion is, is faith in name only. Religion A is the practice of coming to church and making an appearance without any real faith in the living Lord. Religion A is religion. It's an illness that pollutes us with the requirements of religion without us ever experiencing the joy of living in faith. Religion B, on the other hand, he says is a life-transforming, destiny-changing experience. It's a definite commitment to the crucified and risen Savior which establishes an ongoing personal relationship between a forgiven sinner and a gracious God. In those two is the difference between the person who has accepted God's gift of forgiveness in Jesus and the forgiveness of their wretched sinfulness and then goes on and takes that freedom and lives life on their own terms and does whatever they want. Thank you for the gift, God. Now I'm busy. And the other option is the person who loves Jesus and not only has accepted Him as their Savior, but has also placed Him as Lord of all things in their life. 
One is a Christian in name only. The other is a Christian who chooses to live their life as a disciple of Jesus growing every day more and more into the likeness of their Lord and Savior. Which one describes you? Who will you be? What will people know you as? How will you live? What is your heart really? And is that your final answer? Let's pray. God, this is a tough parable. It's an easy one to read and to just kind of gloss over and not do much with, but it's something different when we look at it and when we're willing to stand in the mirror and look at who we really are in the light of Jesus' teaching in this parable. We all want to be the Father. We all want to be the one that's filled with love and grace, welcoming people who have hurt us. But we know that that's You. And the best that we can do is to become a disciple of Your Son, Jesus, who gave His life so that we might live. And if we choose to live as a disciple of His, then a bit by bit, moment by moment, day by day, we can look a little bit more like Him. We can be a little bit more like Your heart. But if we're honest, we recognize both sons in our own lives. We are reckless with the freedom that You give us in Jesus. And we grow up with hearts for religion. Hearts that say if we just do the right thing, you don't really care about the other stuff. But the fact is, God, what breaks your heart is our sinfulness. And both of those sons show us their sinfulness. God, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You that He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He paid the price for that sin, and so God, we ask that the power of Your Holy Spirit would be present not just in this place, but in our lives, in our hearts and in our minds, that we wouldn't go through life with a heart of religious duty, but that we would go through life with a heart of joy in the relationship that we have with You. And it's because of Your Son, Jesus, that we're able to do that. So we give You thanks in His name. Amen. Uh, you know, I, I thought about not doing this closing today, but then that song kind of made me realize I have to. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. Amen. We don't talk about sin very often in America because we don't like it because we know it's us. So what you hear pastors talk about is your bad decisions and your mistakes and your oopses. None of those break God's heart. What breaks God's heart is our sinfulness. The fact that we can't handle our freedom as Christians. And we need to be clear about what sin is so that we can fully understand what forgiveness is. And so, at the risk of you not remembering the rest of the sermon, the rest of the message today, I'm going to give you this example to go, alright? Here's sin. Sin is this. Back in the days that the Roman army got so good at crucifying people on the cross, there's something else that they did. When they would go into an area and they'd overrun an army and there would be captives, there would be people who didn't die 
soldiers who didn't die, but they didn't have any use for, what they would do with them just to humiliate them because they couldn't necessarily give them a death sentence, what they would do is that they would bind them with chains on their wrists and on their ankles, and then they would wrap their chests and their neck around one of their dead soldier comrades. And they would make them live and carry around this dead body right in front of them, doing everything that they did until they themselves, being reminded of death all the time, literally in front of them, would in fact die. Horrible, horrible practice. But you know what, folks? That's sin, and we're chained to it. Sin is every bit as much death as tying a dead body to us and thinking that we can live with it attached. And we cannot. And the only thing that we've got to break the shackles is Jesus and what He did for us on the cross. That's all. And so not only do we need to confess our sinfulness, but we need to repent and go back to God. And God is waiting with open arms, shackles broken, freed, saying, now go live the way I created you to live. And that is worth an amen. Amen. So with that, we've got... You can even clap because that's a God thing. Yes. So we got one more song before we go. Have a great week. And you know what? Realize you have this one life to choose who it is that you will serve. Are you going to be a person in religion A or a person in religion B? The one is all about you. The other is all about Jesus.